1: Welcome to the 210th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Sten Morgan. Sten is the founder of Legacy Investment Planning, a hybrid advisory firm near Nashville, Tennessee, that generates more than $2 million of revenue per year, serving 220 affluent clients. What's unique about Sten, though, is the way he's built his advisory firm by making himself and his planning ideas into his product, charging first and foremost for his advice and the unique way he's figured out how to quantify the value of his advice strategies that he's bringing to the table for clients. In this episode, we talk in depth about Sten's The Advisor is the Product philosophy, why every prospect meeting starts off with a whiteboarding session where Sten tries to highlight new planning ideas for clients right away instead of holding back until he's been hired before sharing his best ideas. The mental strategy that Sten uses to quantify the near-term positive economic benefits that his advice will bring to get clients comfortable with his advice fees. And why Sten charges a full-rate financial planning fee with monthly retainer fees of hundreds or even thousands of dollars per month, and then discounts his AUM fee for those who subsequently implement with him. We also talk about Sten's own journey through the advisory business, why he started out at a major life insurance firm, but ultimately left because it focused too much on the value proposition on his company's products instead of his own value, how trying to become more advice-centric at an investment-centric firm led to him being unexpectedly terminated and suddenly forced to hang his own shingle, and the way he was able to get his new practice going quickly by diving headfirst into a new niche with doctors at the local hospital. And we certain listen to the end. Where Sten shares the mindset changes that were ultimately critical for him to turn an initially struggling advisor career into a successful one. How Sten tries to accelerate his success by constantly seeking out those who have already traveled the journey ahead of him to help him shortcut his own. And why Sten thinks it's best not to start with your why in finding your purpose, but instead starting with your who. Who you're building your career for. Because staying focused on them so you never let them down can be the ultimate motivator through the inevitable challenges that may arise. And so, with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Sten Morgan. Welcome, Sten Morgan, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Good to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me, bud. I'm really excited about today's conversation and and talking about some of the challenges of, of what happens when. When you get started as an advisor, as a 20 something, and, and have to build, you know, we've had actually a few guests on the podcast lately, who kind of started their careers early. And, and I always sort of chuckle a little bit to myself, as we talk about these stories, because like, I, I feel like I have to put a warning sign in, in, in front of these episodes of saying, so like, just for the official record, I do not actually recommend that 20-somethings coming straight out <laughs> of school, like go directly out to hang your own shingle and try to get your own clients. I know there are firms that recruit that way and that that's a, a pathway and technically a lot of jobs that way. But so much of it from the advisor's end is companies just kind of throw a whole bunch of 20-somethings at the wall. They see what sticks. For them, they just get to keep, keep the winners and let the losers go find something else to do from your end as an advisor. Like that was your one shot at the career. And if you start out on the wrong foot and don't survive those early years. You don't get to play the game in the long run. So like I'm, I'm not a, I'm not actually a fan of the approach, but I know you've had a pretty cool story about how you've done that and starting out in the big insurance world and, and, and moving into your own firm and building on your own and doing it while you were moving. So you even had to do it in an area where you didn't necessarily have a natural client base of your own to build with that, you know, infamous natural market of friends and family. And so really just excited to talk about like, for, for those like you that are going to persevere through it and do it anyways, and I, I know even if I warn, this is not actually a recommended path, there will be people that are going to do it anyways. Mm. So for those who are going to do it anyways, I'm just I'm excited to talk about how, how do you actually make this work when you're starting out as a 20 a something and, and you know, limited credibility and limited expertise early on, but you got to get clients and get going. Like, how do you make that work?
2: Yeah, it's 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 hard. I think one thing, and Michael, I love your iceberg illusion that you talk about, because I think as I've kind of progressed to the career, I, I at times forget to talk about the reality of of my journey. And the start of it was really very traditional. And then I started with a large insurance company doing their internship program. And this wasn't a multi-generational career for my family. I took the internship because it was the only one that paid me a 100 bucks a week to show up never thinking I'd own a business or, or do anything of the sort. And so I entered, similar to what you talked about, they recruited a bunch of us and there was a few of us left at the end of the day and we just started selling proprietary products. And, but then I kind of had a, a stirring in me that was like, I think there's a different side of this business I don't know yet. So I jumped ship and, and went to a large investment firm and, and learned about the investment side. But again, it just felt unsatisfied because in both scenarios, we were just selling product. And it was kind of what the product was. We had to offer. We went out and we learned to sell it. But in your 20s, that's hard because what you're selling against is long-term established relationships that clients have with other advisors. And so it was this grind. I mean, it was was the path. I had accepted the 15 to 20-year path that the industry told me was normal of, hey, you hang in here and you grind it out. It's going to be terrible for two years, really bad for the next three, kind of hard for the next five, and then eventually you'll hit some momentum. And based on my background, I grew up with a single mom, three sisters. Risk was not really something that I was interested in. You know, my whole goal was to get comfortable as quick as possible. And so part of what I talk and teach other advisors now is you need to know what you're getting into. And I think, Michael, like you mentioned, a lot of advisors don't know what they're getting into because the industry kind of sells them on the upside without really painting the hard picture.
1: Yeah. I do think we have a huge challenge of... As you said, we we sell the upside and don't paint the realistic picture sometimes, you know, we sell the successful advisors can make hundreds of thousands of dollars and don't always get to the, oh, but like eighty percent of your recruiting class will probably be gone within yeah. twenty four to thirty six months. and and you know, of course, it just it just sort of preys on that self-confidence that, a lot of people have in their in their twenties of like, well, yeah, I know eighty percent won't survive, but like I'll be one of the twenty percent who do. And of course, everybody in that group says that, and eighty percent of them still aren't there two or three years later. And you know, we we convince ourselves we're going to be the one, even though we we may not be, or that may not be realistic. But but I'm really struck by sort of your framing that like your approach was like you didn't want the the risk of trying to be out there on your own, getting stuff going. I think as you'd put it, you wanted to get to comfortable as soon as possible, which I think classically is not something we associate with entrepreneurship, (laughs) eat what you kill, get your own clients, hang your own signal, launch a business as a 20 something. So, so talk to us a little bit more about kind of the the steps of this journey. So like you said, you started out as a, a, insurance company and an intern programs? Like where did you go and how did you find your way to this intern program?
2: It was, I was at a college in Oregon. I grew up outside of Eugene and they, they had just come by large insurance company. Most people would know them and kind of did their, put out a, a kind of a, an all call on campuses. And I said, Hey, that sounds interesting. And, and it was the only one of probably the five I was looking at that paid something to show up. And so I said, Hey, let's give it a shot. The tough thing there again was my mindset. You know, all of us are have our own story and a lot of mindsets are kind of created for us up probably until age 20. And most of us for an extended period of time base our decisions off beliefs we made when we were 13 or 14. So I I felt based on growing up in a small town in Oregon, good things don't happen to people like us. You know, you just work as hard as you can and eventually hopefully make enough money to pay your bills and be okay. So the bar I set for myself was so low, you know, running a business, no way, you know, that just, that just doesn't happen to people from Elmira, Oregon. For me though, I had to start focusing on the fact three sisters, single mom, and it was probably in college when I accepted the internship, but I said, I think I, I have the ability to impact other people outside of myself. And so there's an an obligation to, to pursue that to some extent. And so I actually started taking my Series 7 while I was a junior in college because the more people I surrounded myself with, I realized there's people that have overcome much harder things than I had, have become very successful. So there must be something they know that I don't because I believe they weren't working harder than me. They just figured something out. And so I started interviewing financial advisors, interviewing CEOs, and just saying, I need to know what the gap is between where I am and where you are. And what I learned is they just... they found a way to tilt the curve in their favor. They didn't do things in 10 years. They figured out how to do it in one year. And so I just became this sponge of information of saying, hey, the quicker I can learn things to avoid wishing I had known something sooner, which is most of our path. Right. I think that instead of 15 years to be a successful advisor, I bet I can do it in three. That was step one. I just had to believe it was possible. And by finding people that had done it already, I knew it was possible. I just now had to convince myself that I was actually capable of it. So as a
1: junior in college,
2: did you already know you wanted to be an
1: advisor in particular or a business owner in general or just kind of
2: something successful? So let's talk to a lot of different people in industries and careers. Like, It was in finance. I think my my young mind growing up, we moved a lot and you know, kind of father figures in and out of my life. And the one common theme I saw was that money seemed to always be the issue. And so I said, well, I'm going to learn about finance and economics. And so that, that's kind of what, pushed me down that path to start learning from people in that industry. And then I started realizing, well, you know, I think the information I'm gathering, there's products that solve problems for people and I think I can be good at selling those products. And so like many advisors, I started with a product based mindset, you know, I need to find a company that has stuff that I can provide to people that helps them. And so like many advisors, I started on a very traditional path in the industry. Keep your head down, grind it out for a long time. And it wasn't until I ended up in Nashville, kind of no market, was with kind of a bigger warehouse, And they were selling a bunch of A-share business. And I was like, I just don't want to have 2,500 clients that I promised something once and now I have to go find more because I already got paid. And that's when I maybe didn't play my cards right, but I kind of brought up to the president of that company, Ed, I just think there's a better way to do this. What do you think? I think I might explore other things. And and I had a box that afternoon, walked out of the building. <laughs> And I just, I remember thinking to myself, like, I should have been a little more strategic about the conversation. Because at the end of the day, the, from the president's
1: end, you're like, son, you're at a, you're at a firm that sells manufacturers and sells products. Like <laughs> you if want you that. want to do a different thing, like bless you, here's, here's your box of stuff. Go, go find your next thing.
2: Good luck. Yeah. And, and I look back and it was a blessing because he had, he had been a somewhat of a mentor for a while. And my hope was that he would kind of, talk me out of it and kind of usher me into kind of the next season of of that (laughs) life cycle. But the good news was he handled it terribly, which forced me because remember, I I wasn't at this stage even ready to plant my flag and take over the world. You know, I was still, hey, if I make enough money, I can help my mom and sisters and I can pay my bills like that was the whole goal. It was $100,000 was the number I had in my mind. Like if someday I can make $100,000 then all my problems will go away. So because he kind of forced my hand, that's where I was about to get married, unemployed, which my wife still reminds me of at the time, and I had to just do something. And so that's when I just kind of hung my shingle and said, well, I'm not from here, I don't really know anybody. These letters I'm getting in the mail say I have a non-compete that I didn't, wasn't fully aware of, that I can't talk to anybody I have met. And so I had to start from scratch.
1: Interesting, so, so you didn't even realize
2: as you
1: Went to the firm and said, hey, I'm thinking about doing something a different way after which they promptly ushered you out the door that you were still attached to a non-compete or non solicit contract that said you couldn't actually do what you were doing before and you couldn't talk to any of the clients that you previously had worked with.
2: Mm -hmm. And there wasn't a big count. I hadn't been in Nashville very long, but I think that I just, I didn't know what questions to ask being young in the business. I, I think I just kind of, I just, I needed some forward movement, so I accepted offers as they came, you know, didn't didn't think through and kind of have a vision of what could this look like long-term. And a lot of firms have things like that. This one just happened to really take it seriously when enforcing it. So I was 24 getting letters in the mail and threats of everything. And it was, it was intense time. And so that's where I had to say, okay, I can't call anybody. In hindsight, I knew I could have, there's ways to kind of do that appropriately, but I just said, okay, to avoid that wrath, I had to start fresh. And it was, I remember sitting in an office having nothing to do at 25. I was just like, (laughs) you know, I just pray like, okay, where's the next client coming from? I don't even know how to do this. I don't have a lead flow coming in. I don't, and I remember the first client I had, I had a friend that said, Hey, I I know a guy in West Virginia that might need some help. And I kid you not. And the next day I was in the car, I drove eight hours to have a two hour meeting and drove eight hours back in the same day. And that was my first client. (laughs) I was say, did it close at least? It eventually closed, but it was, I look back and I'm like, I think there was probably somebody 20 minutes down the road that would have done business with me too, but that's the only meeting I had. So I took it and closed it and he's still a client to this day. And uh, I don't think he knows that story fully, but uh, the iceberg under the ocean w- was miserable. And to be honest, I was on the verge. I was days away from becoming the 80%, you because know? the way I thought of myself and my potential at that time was, I just don't think I I have what it takes. You know, people like me from where I was from don't do things like this. And so I was right there on the edge.
1: So what was it that, I guess, led you to stay stay in it and want to keep going with all those kind of layers of fear or self-doubt or literally like just staring at unemployed with my new spouse?
2: I, I gave myself six months. I said, okay, let's just kind of run this out. My wife was a nurse and she was working at the time and I was like, okay, I have some amount of runway here to kind of take, to see what I have learned over the last two and a half years in this business can be applied to make just even a reasonable amount of income, but then became a student of the game. And I think the, one of the things I took away early on that I coach other advisors on still is, is you are the product. And I think too much of our industry relies on relationship with clients to get them and retain them. And I remember telling myself, if if I was so good at what I did, which means if I got a a plate appearance, if I got to meet with a client and I could give them something they've never heard of before or would add so much value, I bet if I could save a client $100,000 with some tax strategies and different ideas, I bet they would stop working with their brother-in-law for that. Because at some point, a relationship with your advisor is important, but it's only to a point. And so I started studying, I got my CFP as fast as I could, and I just started becoming a student of the game because I think I, I told myself, I don't think clients care if it's mutual fund A, B, or C, ETF A, B, or C, or what insurance company, as long as it's good. What I think they'll buy is me and the ideas. And so I had to break this this idea that the product was really what it's about and say, you know, I think it's the advice. And so I didn't get as many plate appearances, I was in a cold market, but my close rate became so high because I came in with things that most people just haven't heard of before. So, can you talk a little
1: bit more about, I mean, just what that was like it, in
2: practice? What
1: do you, as you put it, like? What are you coming to the plate with that's making a close rate very high when you're coming in as a, you know, a twenty-something stranger in a in a new practice trying to get business going?
2: Yep. So, so I built my COI network as fast as I could. So I'd sit with attorneys that did estate planning and say, what are these, what are the nuances that I need to be aware of? I meet with CPAs and say, I just need a few ideas. Cause if I can get a client in a meeting to think even once or twice, I've never heard of that before, or why hasn't my other advisor said that y- you have them, you know, then they want to know what else you got. And so some of that would be, you know, it's amazing how many clients don't do active tax harvesting in their accounts because I had the inside scoop on a lot of the industry, which I had seen was product-based. It wasn't creative idea based. And so when I'd go in, you talk to a higher earner about a backdoor Roth. You know, I think some of your listen, most of your listeners maybe heard of that. Financial planners kind of know to think that way, but most financial professionals don't. And so I'd get in front of a doctor that has $3 million parked at a, a big wirehouse that the, they get one call a year just to look at their investments. And I had the knowledge to read their estate plan and say, Do you know that at the age of 35, all of your assets are going to be forced out on your kids? Do you know if you change this line, you can actually just give them access to it, but they can still be their own trustee and the money's still protected? Something like that is all it takes for somebody to say, oh, I didn't know that. Well, tell me more about that. Or you tell a business owner about R&D tax credits. I have one last year. You need to make sure you have a good CPA that's really up, up to speed on this stuff. But they invented a chicken light and they had just like a lot of businesses, put their money into it over the time. and But we found them a tax credit, I think a $250,000 tax credit they didn't know about. Their clients for life, they pay me $3,000 a month just to be on the team because they've seen kind of the light. And so at little things like that are really where the power is. But if if we get hung up on internal expense ratios, past performance, this insurance ledger looks better than that one, which is most of the conversations that I was trained to have early on, It's it's just white noise.
1: So it's very much kind of, it's talking about strategies, action items, sort of in a very literal sense, like advice, things you can do, but trying to get away from talking specifically about products or product comparisons, or as you said, you know, expense ratios, enforce illustration ledgers and all of that. And, and just getting to like, let's, let's talk about estate planning. Let's talk about tax credits. It, it sounds like those are the primary areas that that you were raising these conversations, like very, very estate planning-based and very tax-based, backdoor Roth act of tax harvesting, R&D credits, et cetera?
2: Tax is probably the biggest pain point I come into contact with, that if I can press it and give some ideas, it opens the other doors. Estate planning is is pretty low-hanging fruit. And and they don't have to take everything you, you say. It's just they need to know, like, this person is telling me about things I've never heard of before. And a great book that really helped change the way I think quick disclaimer is that if you look this book up, make sure you go to Amazon and then the business book section, but it's Getting Naked by Patrick Lencioni. Yep. And that it's such a great book about give the best ideas away right away. And that really trained me that when I sit with somebody, as opposed to thinking, oh, I got to hold my best stuff back because what if they take it and do it with another advisor or try to do it themselves? That's a, that's a lie. Most people don't have the time and energy to do that. So if you give your best stuff away right away, Almost hundred percent of the time i'll say ninety nine because it's probably not every every time they end up saying that's great. what else do you have and I think that's something that 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 I see a lot of advisors missing
1: yeah i uh I actually read Patrick's book early on in my career as well and and had a very similar impact to me that you think you said it well like we we get so locked in this mindset of like I have to protect all my best ideas and I can't tell anyone about them until they're already a client because they might take it and do it themselves They might take it and do it with their current advisor. And, you know, once in a blue moon, someone may end out doing that. But basically 99% of the time, when you brought the idea to the table, their natural response is just like, well… I didn't know about that. Now I know about that. Can you help me do that? (laughs) Because nobody else knew how to do that, or I would have done that already. So the fact that no one else ever told me or helped me do it, and you apparently know how to do it means I should probably be doing this with you since you apparently know yourself and no one else does. And like we, we get caught up in our heads about clients, second guessing us or trying to game us when most of the time in practice in the real world, people just like, Oh, that's a great idea. Can you help me with that?
2: I remember I had a a mentor, I was, I was looking at starting a business vertical, you know, outside of legacy, but was, was financial educated related. And I was like, oh, I got to kind of keep this tight chested. And, and and he had started and sold multiple healthcare companies. And, and he said that, that rarely if ever happens, he's like the people that will hear about your idea, don't have the time energy to stop doing what they're doing to all of a sudden try to copy and steal yours. So, so as I've learned more about business, I've realized that. We all are busy. Whether it's businesses, families, kids, the, the chances someone's going to overhear an idea and all of a sudden reverse engineer it and try to steal it from you is just not likely. And and so that that was that was freeing for me to say, well, let's just start giving it away. And and that really helped reinforce our brand as man. Those guys are creative. Like they they're saying things I've never heard of. I may not implement it, but the fact is, I think having them in my circle is going to make me better.
1: If they're saying things I haven't heard of and wasn't familiar with that seem beneficial, even if I don't like the particular one they put forward, I don't want to do this one. Like I will, I will do some of them. I will do, I will do the the next one because if they're coming up with that many good ones, something's going to be something's going to be something I want to actually do, even if it's not this first one they put on the table.
2: That's right. But there's there's a, a second step of that. A great idea is one thing. And this is something i've really kind of tried to hone in on but being able to quantify the value of your piece of advice to somebody makes all the difference because if i tell a client here's a tax strategy you know if we harvest actively from your portfolio it'll add x value they might say okay it sounds good i'm not doing it but i believe people solve big problems not small problems and so as an advisor we position an idea to a client if if we don't show them the potential cost of not acting on it, that's our fault. And so for example, let's say I have an idea that'll save a client $10,000 in taxes. Hey, you fully fund your SEP IRA, whatever it is, I don't tell the client that that's a $10,000 problem. I tell them over the next 10 years, if we do this strategy, it'll save you $100,000. Okay. Because that's, that's the reality of it, but we have to make the problem big enough to, to actually land on their top five list because they have a bunch of other stuff going on in their life and they won't solve a small problem. They'll get to it eventually. We have to help them prioritize and show them if you don't do this 10 years from now you're going to look back and say why didn't I do that or I wish I would have known that sooner.
1: Interesting. And so in practice is that one of the the tactics for it is sort of let's let's take a thing that we might do for the client this year but we're not going to talk about it this year. We're going to talk about it of what happens if you do this on an ongoing basis in the future? Because now we're talking about five years of tax deductions for your retirement contributions, ten years of tax deductions for your retirement contributions. As you noted, at some point you you stack on enough years there, and the numbers get get big.
2: They do, yeah. And I think it's even with taking action on funding a SEP IRA. You know, that takes cash flow away from today, but it's up to us to kind of expand upon the compounding effect of these decisions. And so obviously we want to be positive with our clients. So I say, Hey, if we do X, Y, and Z, it's going to help us save this much money. But at times we also have to help clients recognize pitfalls that we say, if you don't do this and this happens, here's what's at risk. If you don't do this estate planning strategy and X, Y, and Z happens, you'll have to write a check to the government for $4 million. Oh, and by the way, that's going to mean that you have to sell your, your farm to do it. And so it's up to us to help the client quantify and understand the the true value of the decisions that we're trying to get them to make. Where before I'd meet with a client and say, hey, you should move this investment account over because the investment expenses are 0.02% less and our performance may be better. Like that doesn't move anybody. <laughs> like, And that was literally a conversation I kept having with people. And I'd get one every once in a while, but then I'd have a bunch of people, and I, I don't know how many of your listeners can relate to this, but I'd have a file of just names of people that I would sit there and call for years and years. And, and they just would take an idea here and never move on it. And I just like, I, how much time have I spent with this person? How many lunches did I have, have I bought? And they've never taken action. It was because I was positioning everything the wrong way. Because
1: you weren't, you weren't quantifying impacts. You weren't quantifying outcomes.
2: Yep. I wasn't creating the urgency that was necessary. And, and I don't we shouldn't create unnecessary urgency. You know, the goal is not to deceive, but it's with all the facts we have. Can we show them the impact of, of, of acting or not acting?
1: And it sounds like a big piece of this is, is literally trying to put it in dollars, like quantifying impact in dollars. Is That's that, right, is yeah. that fair characterization? Like, I'm just saying a lot of what you're describing keeps coming back to you know, hard dollars of cash.
2: That's right. Yeah. Percentages, basis points. I mean, we got to get it out of our, our own industry language and say business owner, husband, wife entrepreneur startup, this is the, this is the potential impact of not doing this or taking this action. And and it, it, my conversion rate and time to close, for lack of a better word, people will move and they'll move quickly if they know, wait, I'm now going to bump this to my top one or two action items because, because I now understand the impact it could have.
1: And so in practice, I guess, even, even in the context of, you know, the infamous, like, Difference in expense conversations. This is not like, hey, if you move your million dollar portfolio to me, you can you know you can save 02 percent. This is like if you you know, move your million dollar portfolio, you know, you could have a lower expense ratio, which over the next ten years would add up to twenty thousand dollars of savings. Actually, almost twenty seven thousand dollars with growth. That's so right. you know, can I can I talk to you about how I can save you twenty seven thousand dollars
2: over the next ten years. And then I'll I'll add on top of that tax efficiency for non qualified money, and you start stacking that you know, you're saying by working with us, you know, and I'll even charge these people planning fees. And it's like, well, by doing X, Y, and Z just alone, before we start implementing any creative strategies we've mentioned, we're going to save you $50,000 over the next year, which more than pays for our planning fee. And so it's up to us to show that there's really no reason not to act. We don't want to leave it up to chance or them just hoping. And I remember this story that an advisor told at a conference years ago, and I got to know him after the fact. And and, he, and he'll and he never shake it. I mean, he's learned from it, but he was, I think he working on like a $60 million investment account. A guy sold his business and he, it was a long interview process. I think four or five meetings, attorneys, CPAs were involved and it came down to him and I think a broker from Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, I can't remember what it was, but he, he ended up losing out and he knew that, got to know the client well enough that he said, can I have lunch with you? I, I want to know why I didn't get the deal. And he said, My wife and I couldn't tell the difference between you two. It actually came down to a coin flip. So he lost a $60 million client over a coin flip because everything he was saying was the same and the client couldn't differentiate really what the value was by choosing him over the other advisor.
1: Because we all get into this. Well, you know, I I provide customized, individualized, (laughs) personalized financial planning advice with my expertise and years of experience and we give great service to all of our clients and all of that might be true and valuable, but like we literally all say it down to the point that if you're competing with a good client, it's pretty certain that everybody else they're talking to is the saying the same thing and they, and they can't tell us apart.
2: Yep. And, and alpha and returns, you know, it's, it's, it's the creative strategies. So our, my legacy's mission statement is changing lives through creative financial strategies, which means we are truly there to add value and get results. And if we aren't, we're going to step away. And I challenge some of the advisors I coach and I'm like, you need to think about if, if, if I came in behind a client and met with them, how confident would you be that they would work with you versus me? And obviously I have kind of years of experience of kind of honing this, but the challenge is like, wow, I don't know how good my first or second meeting is, or am I approaching a client like I don't have any competition? Sometimes you don't, but the goal should be is when they leave that meeting, they say, I've never had a meeting like that before. The advisor jumped up on a whiteboard and she was giving me some of the best ideas and I hadn't even paid her yet. We haven't even talked about fees or expense. Like literally she's just giving me great ideas. That's the kind of experience we want to provide because that's what people remember.
1: And then at some point, you know, I'm sure you get into all sorts of other interesting client psychology. Like if this is what he tells people for free before I'm a client, like what sort of strategies do you get once you are a client? Yeah, like, where,
2: where can I sign? That's right.
1: So I am wondering, though, is, as you talk about just quantifying these, so like sort of two things come to mind. One, just how do you quantify this stuff? I mean, I get some is pretty straightforward, like, you know, your expense ratio is this and your portfolio is that. So I can do the arithmetic and figure out the dollar savings. Maybe I'll 10x it over 10 years just to, to you know, show the, show the impact over time and, and raise the stakes a little. I get it maybe on a you know a tax deduction, like just here is the dollar savings. But I feel like a lot of what we do, this is sort of the ephemeral, the like the always present problem in financial planning. So much of what we do is kind of soft and ephemeral. And we're going to do this every six months of reviews for the next 20 years, and you will so thank me in the long run. But it's really hard to quantify. I think a lot of us these days are struggling with just how to articulate and quantify the value of financial planning and the advice that we do. So how like how do you get everything back to quantifiable? Like what are we all missing that we're struggling with this?
2: I think there's always going to be the art which is hard to quantify. We do say, hey, by working with us, we're going to increase the, the time you have available for other things, which you can almost help them do the math. If you had an extra two hours a week to not worry about this stuff, what could you do with it? But you're still, there's a lot of assumptions. So we try to stay in the realm of of manageable where we can actually say, hey, we've we've researched this. We've done some high level kind of shopping around for you. And if you do X, Y, and Z, it, it leads to this amount of dollar savings, which more than pays for our consulting fee. And so if we've already paid for our fee, everything else after that is gravy. So for example, we may say, hey, we have some partners we 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 consult out with. Give us all your deck pages for your home and auto and other insurance policies and we'll shoot those out between meeting number 1 and between meeting number 2 or 3 where we actually position our fee. We'll get back kind of a side-by-side comparison of their all their property and casualty insurance. And almost every time we can save them fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars while improving coverage. Most people don't shop that stuff very often. So if we can do that for them and we take that over 10 years, we just save them 15 grand or 20 grand.
1: And so for you, that's what, uh like getting a copy of all the declaration pages of their their PNC coverage, home auto, maybe umbrella liability if they've got something. And like you you analyze it internally, you've got PNC. Agents, you know, or firms that you work with, to say, "Hey, guys, take a look at this." You let me know what you see, and then I'm going to bring it back to the client because obviously we all win if the client wants to act. But you know, they, they give you they give you competing quotes or whatever it is, and then you can come back to the client and say, "Hey, I found this. Uh, it'll save you $1,500, which over the next ten years is $15,000. So, how about we talk further since I, I just saved you $15,000 on your." home and auto insurance with a review.
2: With one idea. That's right. And and so between the first or second data gathering meetings to the proposal, we're trying to get as much information so we can show them in a matter of weeks, we just saved you X dollars. Imagine what we can accomplish over the next 12 months. Almost everybody you meet with knows they need financial advice, whether they're, they're getting it or they don't. They're going to say, I need it. I know we need to get to it. The barriers we're going to run into is the price is too high now. I'll get to it someday, which they won't. It'll just keep dragging. Or two, I have the money. I'm just having a hard time pulling the trigger because I, I don't quite believe what I'm going to get out of it. And so by quantifying as best you can, whether it's, hey, I reviewed your estate planning strategy. It looks like this insurance policy is held outside of trust. you know that why it was done that way? And then you help them show, hey, do you know this will increase your taxable estate? While this isn't taxed, it could tax your other assets. And that could end up being a million dollar tax bill someday. Clearly, I'm saying, hey, there's some assumptions here, but by not acting, we're just leaving these pitfalls in the future. And so at all possible, and disclose that you're making some assumptions at times, but say, here's the potential dollar impact of not doing this. By not having an estate plan, here's what that issue could cause. You should spend $1,000 to get an estate plan. It'll save you 50. That is the conversation. We have to give people real numbers as opposed to selling off ideas or feelings of, just trust me, if you work with us, we're going to put you in a better place. I think at least where, where I grew up in the business and how I was trained, we relied way too heavily on potential plans, insurance ledgers of what could happen. You know, we need we need to try to bring it down to the concrete.
1: So that does make me wonder though. I mean, you kind of mentioned in there about disclose your assumptions, but I think a lot of us have kind of been trained or had this beaten into our heads of like, don't guarantee results don't guarantee performance like you know you got to be careful what what gets promised to clients because then you can become liable if that doesn't become a reality which is a real problem certainly with things tying to markets because they may not become reality i guess the other part i'm wondering is just like how do you quantify these and put them out there in a way that you you don't have to worry that someone's going to come back and say like hey stan it didn't you know it didn't come out to fifty thousand dollars over ten years we've been working for a few years and it hasn't added up to much like i'm I'm firing you or I'm suing you because you know, you you overpromised this $50,000 of value and that's not how it's materializing because whatever, li- life changed, something happened. Mm-hmm. But you know, all, all they'll remember is $50,000 once right. you put that number out there. So how do you think or worry about, I guess, the, the liability exposure of this or just how you quantify this in a way that doesn't get you in trouble if, if life and circumstances change?
2: Yeah. So I, I found that the client doesn't need it documented. All of these conversations happen in like a whiteboard format. And so as we're up on the whiteboard and I'm saying, hey, here's some things we found, consider this. What we're giving them is a, a feeling of confidence that, okay, they've already identified ways I can save money because we're not trying to get them to, we are not tr- we don't need to guarantee them results five years from now. We just need to get them over the hesitation in the short term to take action on something Because what I know is that if I get them on my client list for the next 12 months and they pay me a fee monthly, quarterly, or annually, I'm finding that value. I'm going to make them know, wow, having him involved gave me more time back. My fares are in order. I have a balance sheet for the first time. I know what my budget kind of looks like. We have a 12-month runway to show all the value we have. The the ideas we share up front in kind of a whiteboard conversational format are just to, to open their mind up to like, okay, this is worth pursuing.
1: So the idea is less of like you literally have to work with me because of this idea which will save you this much money. Let's let's go and I'll, you know, I'll prove it out to you that you'll get this exactly this much money back and more along the lines of here here's an idea, here's the actual financial impact it would be for you if you like these kinds of ideas and this sort of stuff I would love to work with you on an ongoing basis cuz just one idea like this is more than enough to cover my feet for the first year and several years to come. You know, as we work together it may be this or it may be other ideas that we actually bring to the table and implement. But I hope you're seeing now the, the kind of advice that we put on the table and the opportunities that we create. And we'd love to work with you on this or some other ideas over the next year.
2: Exactly. Yep. And, and I think if you're selling a year experience, and that's why in, in kind of two financial planning, about four years ago, we were doing zero planning fees. I started an insurance company, transitioned to a warehouse bigger investment firms. So at one point only thought about insurance, the other side only thought about investments all the time to settling into, who I felt kind of my identity as an advisor was more of a advisor with great ideas, you know, and, and if I don't sell products or I don't want to make clients feel that way, then I have to somehow get paid for what I'm doing. And, and that's where I dipped my toe in the water of, of financial planning. And the, and the first one was $1,500 for a year, lost my shirt on that one. But <laughs> it was it was the experience of realizing, wow, there's a lot of value to be added here. They needed me a lot throughout the year. And so now our minimum fee is 4500 to $5,000. And we have clients paying us four or five grand a month. One was eight grand a month. And we'll do about half a million dollars in fees in our fourth full year of financial planning. And I think the reason we're doing it is because we continuously kind of bear the burden of proof to say, hey, here's why you need to keep working with us. I put together a financial planning course to kind of show our playbook to other advisors. And we talk about in there that there's magic behind getting them to sign up where you take away the hesitation because you're showing them, Hey, the value's here and here's a few ideas for free right away that shows you that you then serve them well proactively. And then the power of the renewal is, Hey, there's still a lot to accomplish. And so becoming more of a financial planner based advisor it's really helped me understand how much value can be added to all these people, and once you go through that a couple of times, the next time you position a new plan to a client, there's an air of confidence because you know, hey, there's a lot to come. I'm going to show you some of it now to get you over the hump, but you just wait and see. So when you start talking
1: about, I mean, things as high as like four thousand dollars a month in planning fees for a client, like what are you, what are you doing for someone yeah. at four? Four thousand dollars a month, fifty thousand dollars a year in in planning fees. I mean, what does that what does that look like in practice?
2: So those are businesses almost all the time, and so that th- that involves monthly meetings. You know, we're in their meeting with their CPA, their HR director. They have questions about compensation strategies. We become essentially their the facilitator of financial related decisions. We help them structure their buy sells. We'll sit in the room for operating agreements. And in that course I put together, we actually have real case studies where I say, hey, here's a client that we charge $3,000 a month. Here's everything we did in the first year. And here's why they didn't hesitate renewing. And here's what we're going to do in the second year. I did have a client years ago. we, We went in full bore head. She was growing a technology company, acquiring companies, and she just wanted us full steam ahead with her. And she was paying us eight grand a month. And in hindsight, the compliance lift for that I mean, it was so burdensome that I I think I've learned there's a line to where it's like, hey, there's a point where I'm going to say, hey, we're going to be this involved and here's a fair fee. Beyond that, you're going to need to pull in some other professionals. So I kind of learned my lesson on that one. But it's amazing how many business owners need unbiased advice and guidance. And really what they're buying is your access and and time. You don't quite know what you're going to be doing six months from now. You're going to try to identify at a high level but I had one company I'm working with now that we had a great kind of 12 month runway set up and three months into it, they all of a sudden want to buy another company and there's a 401k to merge in. There's all this stuff and they say, Stan, we don't even know where to go to talk about this. And so I'm helping coordinate with 401k providers to consolidate those plans. And so there's just, there's enough there for business owners that they just don't know where to start. Most of them ignore it. The value of having an unbiased advisor that's not trying to sell them stuff because they don't need somebody else doing that pushing along key objectives for them and being a sounding board, these companies, they don't even think about the fee after year one and a half because they say, we don't know what we do without you. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. And that's why I put that course together for advisors to say, hey, here's here's our playbook from start to finish. But that market, and I, Michael, I've heard you speak about this at conferences, the people most advisors are going after of, hey, I have AUM to manage and I'm ready to take action <laughs> is so small Compared to the the amount of people out there that are willing to pay for great ideas, real estate developers, entrepreneurs, do-it-yourself investors still need good guidance and ideas. It's just trying to figure out, how do I position this well? What's a fair fee to charge? And how do I document it? Obviously, compliance is part of the game. And then how do I continue to make them feel the value so they keep renewing?
1: And so can you talk to us a little bit more about what the business looks like in practice from a from a revenue end like are are you all flat planning fees now are you still also doing investment management or 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 other product implementation like what does the what does the actual business look like at this point
2: yeah so we do advisory and planning fees so my background was advisory so we majority of our revenue still comes from advisory fees but financial planning is is the fastest growing segment and then occasionally we'll bring in a consultant to do a large insurance case for a business owner, buy, sell, or some estate planning case. But a majority of our, our new focus on prospecting is financial planning consulting, which leads to investment advisory business, which leads to the occasional insurance sale. But it's important for us that we when we meet with a client, we say, our engagement with you is on a financial planning for a fee basis consulting there is a second phase if at some point we advise something that you want us to help you implement here's what that looks like but what's great is i don't i don't have to think about the product up front cuz i'm getting paid well for my time naturally there's going to come a, a place where they say hey i don't have anybody else i trust to implement this are you able to help me with that and if, if if it's a good fit we'll do that too
1: interesting so you make a strong point there that you even for a lot of advisors out there that that charge something for planning work and planning fees. You know, we do our fifteen hundred dollar plans or twenty five hundred dollar plans. You know, our our uh, recent benchmarking study for the on the Kids's platform found that we our average advisor charges about twenty three hundred dollars for a financial plan. You know, hovered in that two thousand to twenty five hundred range for a long time. But you know, as you know, like that. I mean, that's not a that's not a small number. That's not a minor number, but. If you look at most advisory firms, once they are at a relatively mature place, the average revenue per client is usually quite a bit higher than than two thousand dollars or twenty five hundred dollars per client. It's a nice way of saying like we don't get paid enough at two thousand dollar planning fees to grow and scale the business and sustain its growth. We usually have to end up getting into something else or moving further up market or expanding the relationship somehow. But it's an interesting framing as you put it when you know, when you are really actually charging full value for the planning upfront. And there really is no pressure to, to do anything on the implementation end, because it's really actually profitable to do the planning work up front at the kinds of fees and numbers that you're talking about, comma, and then, if it turns out that they also want help implementing, you may still get opportunities to that business as well. But it doesn't have the same pressure because your planning isn't a loss leader. It's actually a profitable endeavor. It's just when you do planning work and really build relationships with people often they end out at some point saying like, you've given me all this great advice and I know I'm supposed to implement it. And I never seem to get around to actually doing it. Sten, can you just help me get this done? Mm -hmm.
2: Yep. And and we charge, if we, if we end up managing assets and somebody's paying us for our, our, our planning and time, we charge them a lower advisory fee. I think for years, people kind of did the bundle approach. I know I did at my prior larger warehouse firm was, Hey, pay us 1% and we're going to give you all this stuff. Well, all the other stuff was, hey, we'll do it if you kind of ask us, but we can't afford to pursue you in order to get this stuff done. Whereas now, if, hey, if you're going to pay me for my time, I don't need to bundle it. Therefore, I can charge you 20% less than most advisors. So you're going to pick up more investments because you're even charging less, but you're still more profitable than you would have been just by going after the assets and being a, a stock broker or stock advisor in a client's mind. So I, I would I would strongly encourage, and I know you do this, financial planning does not have to be a loss leader. There are plenty of clients that wanna pay a good fee for good advice, but in order to do it well, you need to know the process going in. And I think a lot of advisors I talk to, they're hesitant to do it. I was, because I just didn't know what to do next. I was willing to ask somebody for a fee, but I think the way I did it left them feeling nervous, because <laughs> I was like, he doesn't seem very confident when he's asking for this fee, and and he doesn't quite know what's coming next. Why would I wanna pay him? So, as we 've spent the last four years building this process of what does the whiteboard session look like what 's the next meeting? What does our proposal template look like? what, based on their level of fee is their service model that we can commit to as far as meetings, phone calls, and collaborating with their other professionals each? If you lay it out as wow, this is a standalone business, the client 's going to sense that and they 're going to realize, wow, they know what they 're doing. this must be valuable. But I think too many people try to slow walk into financial planning or use it as a loss leader that. It ends up being a distraction and maybe adding more risk to their practice than than they know.
1: I'm struck by this framing though of you, know, certainly there are a lot of advisory firms out there that charge an AUM fee and may do a separate planning fee as well. And if you have enough in assets, they start waiving the planning fee. So as in essence, if the portfolio is big enough, they they waive the they reduce or waive the planning fee. But if I'm understanding right, like you essentially do it the other way around, which is the planning fee is the full planning fee if they're working with you on a planning basis and then they also want to have support on implementing the investments. Like the investment fee gets discounted if they're a planning client, not the planning fee gets discounted when they're an investment client.
2: That's right. I think there's a perceived value issue that if I charge you $500 for a financial plan, it must it can't be that good. If I charge you $1,500, it's like, okay, that's helpful, but that's maybe less than I spent on my estate plan. And I know that attorney spent four hours on it. And you're going to work for that for the entire year. So I think when we position it, you know, people realize like, okay, this is an investment. And the dual benefit is that if somebody's willing to pay your fee, they're actually committed. So I'm not really chasing clients anymore because I don't tell people that don't have assets to manage. We can't work with you like I did for years. Now I say, hey, anybody can work with us, but here's the fee. And if they take the fee, then I know, hey, they're probably going to take action. They're going to be better to work with. If they don't take the fee, that's probably one of those clients that years ago I would have called once a month for the next two years. Right. and they would have taken some ideas from me and never done anything. And I don't know how many advi- I don't know how much money I lost over the years from just a time basis, and I still see a lot of my buddies still doing that, you know, chasing whales or advi- or clients that may be good because and it's just like you, your time is more valuable than that. Like you need to be confident saying, "I have value to bring. here's what the cost is for it, if you're not ready for it hey great we're here when you're ready let's move on
1: oh and, and i think you make a an interesting point as well there's always this this fascinating tension to me around charging for planning on the one end when you when you charge for planning up front like it makes it a you know it's a very salient fee it's right out there you will force the client to do the value evaluation mm-hmm. of whether this is worth it which i think as you've articulated well like you you would tackle directly and try to overcome by saying like, yeah, it starts at $4,500. But you know, here's two ideas that we see that could potentially apply in your situation. And between the two of them, they would save you $70,000 over the next 10 years. So how are you feeling about that $4,500? <laughs> right. yeah It's like, oh, okay, well, that doesn't seem, seem so bad. And then the second piece that goes with it is you will screen out the dabblers. Because if they're not really serious and ready to take action, you don't pay $4,500 if you're not ready to take action. You might pay $500 because you sort of thought that maybe you would take action and you convince yourself that you might. But then once you actually get into it, you don't. You know, When you raise the stakes with a higher price point, you, you kind of get this double-edged sword, more likely to filter people out, including maybe folks that might have worked with you, but they were afraid or hesitant on the fee. But the ones who say yes are much more likely to actually follow through and be proactive with you because you know they're paying all that money. Why, why would you not follow through on it now? And so it sounds like you know, you're you're happy with the fact that the people you work with tend to be much more invested because they're literally writing a larger check that makes them more invested. And you just try to overcome that upfront hesitation or sticker shock around the fees and what advice really costs by saying well. Let me quantify for you what this actually looks like with just one or two of the ideas that, that we can talk to you about.
2: That's right. And yeah, and 4500 up front or even 10000 I mean, so our minimum business plan is 10000 But there's solutions now, you know, advice pay and other great ones that are like, hey, what if you pay me monthly? You know, that's not as intimidating. You know, what, what about $380 a month? You know, and so there, I think there's ways to overcome that. But it's the, the initial obstacle is, are you ready to solve the problem? And there was a coach I worked with years ago, Chuck Hollander, And he has this compass that he uses. And uh, kind of the top of the compass is client engagement. The kind of the, the east on the compass is identified a problem with the client. South is are they ready to solve the problem? And west is proposal or idea. And Chuck would say most advisors would meet the client, find a problem, and then jump the compass to solving it right away. What most advisors skip is actually realizing or finding out if the client's ready to do anything about it. And I feel like that's where most advisors waste their time is jumping to solutions before they even got the green light from the client that they're willing or ready to do anything. And I think financial planning helps you do that,
1: All right. Because the the caveat, and I think this is always the hard thing for us in this like advice giver role, is is sort of recognizing the the I guess the the client psychology and all the weird client psychology that crops up. Like the fact that they came in and took the meeting does not actually <laughs> mean they're ready. To take advice and do something like people take meetings for a lot of different reasons
2: mm-hmm. you know like the check the box that they did it <laughs> like just to say i've done something yeah
1: i've done something i guess i'm making progress you know i'm here because my spouse said i had to be right and <laughs> it's like not actually ready to do anything but for the sake of my marriage i have agreed to waste an hour of your time <laughs> so if you're gonna waste more hours of your time that's on you that's but right. you know i'm only here to waste an hour of your time for the sake of my marriage so <laughs> You ain't getting anything out of me by calling me more. I am I was just doing this to reduce my marital
2: strife. Oh, yeah. And I think we have to understand that the, our industry has been around long enough for, for people to have a bias. They think they know what they're going to get by meeting with us. It's our responsibility to show them something totally different. And one of the best compliments I get from clients are, I've never met an advisor like this. I didn't know you could work with an advisor like this. I'm really glad I took this meeting because they're coming in with... You know, preconceived notions on, hey, what are you going to sell me this time? I don't believe that managed money does better than passive index funds. And if you we, we just overcome all those objectives by saying, hey, we don't really think so either. You know, we think there's good, smart ways to manage investments strategically, but I'm not going to try to shove a mutual fund down your throat. Here's what we actually focus on. We believe strategy is what moves a plan forward, not which stock you pick. While that's important over time, if you do that well, that's not really going to be what moves the needle.
1: So, can you just, I guess, walk me through this process of, kind of, what does sales and business development look like for you? You know, if I'm a a prospect that's hit your radar screen by whatever means, I reached out, we got introduced. One of our, you know, mutual friends, COIs, has told me I should talk to Sten, so I call you. I'm like, I heard, I heard you do good creative planning stuff. I'm a business owner. I guess I need some help. So, you know, we should probably meet so I can learn more about what you do. So like what, what happens, what's the actual process for you?
2: So we, we've kind of forced ourselves at our first meeting, you know, hopefully it's in person. We've, we've spent this year kind of building out our virtual experience and kind of a side note there. We believe that virtual advice is just as valuable as advice given sitting across the table. So don't charge less for it. But if we get that first meeting, it is purely kind of based off Patrick Lencioni's book. It, it is a whiteboard session. There's no three-legged stool talk. There's no, hey, here's the history of our firm. We'll get to that. But kind of like you said, if someone takes the meeting, they kind of assume you know what you're doing. So like, let's not spend too much time on, on, on that. Let's get to the meat of it. And so I'm up on our whiteboard and just saying, okay, okay you're a business owner. What's the entity structure of your business? And they might say, well, it's an S-corp. Well, in Tennessee, do you know that the laws, it's not really beneficial to be an S-corp and you can't distribute losses disproportionately, but you could with an LLC. And and so I'm looking for every opportunity to kind of find a rabbit trail to to explore or expose something that they probably have not talked about very often. And so we have kind of a great fact finder template that I share in that that course I put together that kind of walks us through these key questions. Are you confident with your tax strategy right now? Well, not not really. I I I'm, I'm sure there's things out there that I'm not doing that other people are. Well, of course there are. Most of us know there's there's smart people doing things that we could be doing. We just don't know what they are. And and that's a pain point I try to push is saying you paying more taxes just because you don't know how to do it is not a good reason. You know, we all have the right to pay the least amount of taxes possible if we know what we're doing. So tax is a big one. Estate planning is a big one. I'll review their investment accounts and kind of poke on that. So the first meeting is pure idea sharing information gathering because I know in the back of my mind, I'm trying to get as much information, give them as much confidence as possible for them to give me the information I'm asking for. So by time we have meeting two or three, the whiteboard session could maybe turn into two meetings at times, is that I'm already coming back with firm data. So are
1: they bringing data to the first meeting or are you truly just going into this kind of cold of let's just start talking and get to know each other i'm just going to kind of scribble some things on the whiteboard as we go and just start watching for areas where you can point out like hey have you thought about this have you seen that do you recognize this and just start just start putting ideas on the on the table they may not do All of them or most of them or even necessarily any of them, but they're going to start seeing like, okay, this, this guy actually puts ideas on the table and they're things I haven't heard from others. And so even if these aren't hitting, some of them probably going to hit. And if they start responding to one, then I'm sure then you get into like, oh, you know, if we helped you with that over 10 years, it would be $70,000 and the stakes start amping up.
2: That's right. You have to fight the desire to get into any kind of traditional sales conversation in the first meeting. It should literally feel so consultative that they're like wow this is these, these are questions i didn't even know i was going to talk about coming in here the meeting needs to feel so different and so for example a great one is when i talk about real estate most people most advisors don't talk about real estate we don't get paid to help clients with real estate but when it comes to strategy a lot of people feel someday you know i want to buy real estate wherever they get that from or hey i've bought some real estate and it's worked out for me i want to buy more we'll talk to clients about direct versus non-direct recognition assets. And we tell clients, we are fans of real estate if done well, because it's a non-direct recognition asset. And most say, well, I don't know what that means. So I'm on the whiteboard. I draw a picture of a couple houses and I say, okay, imagine you paid a million dollars for a house and you had a million dollars in an investment account. If we took out a half million dollars from that investment account, instead of it being a million dollars growing at 5%, it's now half a million growing at 5%. That withdrawal was directly recognized. The beauty of real estate is if you have a million dollar house and you owe half a million dollars on it, you still have a million dollar house growing at 5%. And so if I can tell a client that, hey, if we took $600,000 off one house instead of paying cash for it, and we use that 600 to put down payments on two other half a million dollar homes, that you only owe $200,000 on it, Now you have $2 million worth of assets growing at 5% where before you only had a million. They may not go out and leverage their HELOC tomorrow. They may not go buy five apartments. Just that conversation is something most people have never really thought through or understood of how people with money make more money. Just that idea people's light bulb goes off. It's like, oh, that's how my friend owns 50 real estate properties. He didn't pay cash for every single one, did he? And I say, no, he didn't. He also didn't leverage them all to the hilt and probably take, take too much risk. There was a balance of strategy right. in that piece. And then, so that one perks people up all the time.
1: And so I'm going to imagine at this point that just you've been doing this for many years. You've got a list of common areas and items that you tend to get into where there's usually, there's usually something there there if, if you get into the conversation with them. Yep. And so what are some of these common areas. It could sound like business entity structures, right? And just some of the tax treatment issues around different types of business entities. You know, the real estate conversation.
2: Yep. Self-directed IRAs is another one. Remember, we're not recommending it. We're just telling them something most people don't know about that they say, wait, I can use my IRA to buy real estate or I can use my Roth to to invest in a startup or give a loan to somebody and get interest back. We don't facilitate self-directed IRAs. Certain custodians will I can almost promise you most people have never been told from an advisor that they can use their IRA funds to do other things.
1: And I guess, and again, you, and you don't necessarily worry about the world of, and then the client actually decides to go and do that. And there's no IRA to manage because they just took it to invest in some real estates. It's like, it's cool. I'm getting an $8,000 planning fee. That's right. <laughs> this conversation, like, I'm going to do fine. With the conversation on the table, so if that's helpful for the client and helps them actually do what they want to do and achieve what they want to achieve, I don't have the the conflict of well, if they actually do this strategy, I'm not getting paid because I don't get to manage the IRA. It's like it's cool, I'm getting paid a planning fee.
2: Yeah, and and it's and it's so much easier to refer us because, and I say us because I know you think this way too, is if if a, if a CPA or an attorney knows that if Michael or Sten meet with a client, they're not going to try to make them fire every other professional. If your sister-in-law is managing your money in New York, great. I'll talk with her. You know, like our, we have a common goal. So right. you'll get referred so much easier when you can be profitable with the planning fee itself. And what's amazing is you get great relationships with people that trust you because you're giving unbiased advice, not trying to push product on them. But one of my top clients was paying me a $7,000 a year planning fee. And then he sold part of a construction company and had 10 million bucks. We now manage that money. I didn't force him to. I showed him some other ideas, but we ended up with, I think, $6 million of it. But I'm still getting a planning fee. And then I was able to, in all confidence, say, oh, you want to reinvest that in some real estate with a different construction company? They're letting you buy stock in this new company that's very large. There was a, a time where I would have not strong-armed him, but maybe tried to talk him out of that when it was actually a good decision. So now I'm able to say, hey, okay, let's put $3 million over there. Let's put four over you create these relationships that you will get a bigger piece of the pie. It's a matter of time, but you're making great money anyway. So you're not really feeling the pressure to force the timeline. Like I, like I know I did in the past. So
1: in this first meeting, this kind of whiteboard session, Patrick Lencioni style, like we're just going to actually start talking about stuff. I'm just going to start putting ideas on the, on the table and- if you find them valuable, you're probably going to want to hire me to help you with that and more. So I'm not, I'm not holding back. I'm just mm-hmm. actually going to try to find things to suggest and offer up and talk about. So like what, what's the goal at the end of that meeting? Because you said this is not a sales meeting. So what, what ideally is the outcome that happens at the end or that comes next if this meeting goes well?
2: So I, I get their buy-in to give me the information I'm going to ask for. You know, probably the last two years of tax returns. It's essentially saying, are you comfortable taking the next step? If so, I'm going to send you a summary of this meeting and show you the items that we need.
1: So this is essentially getting buy-in to get permission to get the actual data to start going deeper on either these strategies or whatever else it
2: is that we're going to find. That's right. And if you do this well, and I, and I didn't for years, but we've definitely kind of refined it. A lot of these meetings start with it feeling like Sten is there to convince them to do something with him. As I do more and more of these meetings, I have one later today, they'll actually, by the end of the meeting, they're going to be saying, hey, when can we meet with you next? Like you've you've just, the the, the hunter has become the hunted if you do it well enough because you've created this urgency of, okay, what can we get you next? What's the next step? And I'll say, I'll send you a summary of the meeting and then we'll get another meeting on the calendar. Because if you do this well, you're going to be busy. And so you're not going to be scheduling meetings the next day. You're going to have this process of, okay, let's try to get back together next week between now and then. I'm going to need you to send me X, Y, and Z so I can be ready for that meeting. I've I've heard different schools of thought on this, but I don't wait for the next meeting until they've gotten me every single thing. The clients I'm working with are busy. So if of my list of five things they get me four, I'll say, hey, let's schedule the next meeting and you can bring it in with you. Because I want I want to keep the momentum going, strike while the iron's hot. So that's that's the goal of that first meeting is to get them to realize, okay, yeah, we got to move. What's next?
1: Okay. So how does this work in practice though? It's still like You get to the end of the meeting, you send them a follow-up, like, here's some of the stuff that we need to continue working together. And I'm assuming at this point, we're getting into the two years of tax returns, your investment statements, uh, your PNC declaration pages, like that kind of stuff is now what you're
2: asking for. That's right. And so I'll get that information. We'll start kind of combing through it. But there is, I'd almost say 50-50, people are ready to move even before we get all that information, which means they're ready to pay our planning fee just based on that initial experience. Beyond that, there's kind of still another meeting to say, hey, here's why and here's the fee and what do you think? But there's a chance that they say, hey, we're ready to get going. What's the fee? And if then we'll kind of put together a high level proposal and say, here's what it could look like for the first year. And that essentially is the next meeting is more of us prioritizing the action items we talked about at a high level. But it doesn't necessarily have to take that many meetings as we've really dialed it in and I've learned where I can press and, and show value in a meeting. Because the quantifying thing we talked about a little earlier is, is harder than it sounds. I, I was not good at it. As you get better at it, you'll be able to do it on the spot. I pull out my calculator and I say, "Well, if you did X, Y, and Z in this, I mean that could save you fifty grand a year." Oh, wow, that's right. amazing! Like, wh- so if you, the better you get at it, you're creating the urgency, and and then they're going to want to move forward even faster. I'd say in practice, if somebody is new to this, you're doing a whiteboard meeting first potentially another whiteboard meeting to kind of flush some things out even further. Don't feel like you have to rush the process because the client will sense that. And and by the third meeting is when you've gathered your information, essentially to be able to go back to them with a proposal and quantify. Based on a few ideas we've had, it probably is going to save you X dollars, these these two ideas in the first year. Our planning fee is going to be $800 a month. Oh, by the way, if you're a business owner, there's a good chance a portion or if all that fee, depending on what we're working on, is tax deductible to you. And they get really excited about that. They're like, oh, people write business checks much easier than they write personal checks. So that's why I'd say our business owner market is growing faster than anything.
1: Yeah. So the idea of the, I guess, I'll call it the post-whiteboard meeting, right? Might be second meeting, might be third meeting if you do.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Two whiteboards getting deeper. Like, nominally, this is is the proposal meeting. Mm -hmm. But again, proposal for you is not like here's your portfolio and here's our portfolio and here's a comparison of the sharp ratios between the two to show how we have a better risk adjusted return than what you're currently doing like your your proposal is around planning discussions and planning strategies and planning tactics that that have come out of the first whiteboard session or two
2: that's right and and we'll wait to the proposal is really an afterthought to us like it's not this build up to this big reveal if you do these meetings well it's almost just oh by the way here's what the planning fee is if you're ready you can sign here You know, so it it doesn't need to feel like you're building to a sale in a third meeting or a, a meeting should not be dominated by a proposal. We continue to dive deeper into different items. And for example, say it was the investments. We don't say, hey, here's what it looks like compared to ours. Work with us. We say, hey, we've analyzed it. And based on benchmarking, we've looked around. And here's a few things. It looks like you're overpaying on fees and your expense ratios are higher than you think. Oh, and you're tax inefficient. It doesn't seem like they've harvested losses from this account for some time. So, we're really going into where they could take that advice back to their current advisor and, and implement it quickly. We are literally looking to overwhelm the client with ideas and value before we ever say, oh, by the way, to move forward with us, it'll cost you $1,000 a month, $500 a month. The proposal is at the end of that meeting, and it's here, by the way, if you're ready, here's what it looks like. Let us know when you're ready to move forward.
1: And so, in practice, is this a literally a written proposal? Is this like a one pager? Is this like a five page Template of things that you sort of walk through step by step, like just what do you, what do you actually culminate with?
2: about four pages, so I've kind of we, it was a one pager for a while, but as we worked with some other clients, they expect a little more detail, a timeline, kind of setting an expectation of how many in person meetings and so it, it's about four pages now of which kind of the final page says level of investment. we express it as a monthly fee or an annual fee. Kind of an open page is hey, here's our philosophy and why we're different, and the middle pages are tax planning, and we kind of detail, here's what's going to fall under that, uh, estate planning, investment, strategy, and analysis. So we we're kind of detailing out at a, at a not too high a level where it all sounds like just concepts, but really, hey, here's what you were going to accomplish and deliver over the next 12 months for you.
1: Interesting. And so what? just walk me through the, like, what are the four pages again? Just how do you structure this flow?
2: Yep. So first one is kind of title page. Here's the client. Here's kind of when the, the, the date. Here's our logo. Next page is essentially our process, our philosophy. Why we think working with a financial planner is different and better than potentially having an advisor that's focused more on product. I don't want to rely on the client to go home and a week later kind of remember all of the stuff that we we told them why we're different. I want to give them at least some refresher. Right. And then the third page, we get into the actual areas of planning that we're committing to
1: okay so this is this is where some of the strategies start really laying out you know we will work with you and your cpa and your accountant to restructure your s corp to an llc so you can better take advantage of your losses and we'll introduce you to someone to set up that self-directed ira because you really actually wanted to invest in a real estate using your ira and mm-hmm. whatever those items are with i guess whatever quantifications you can tag to them do do you? put the quantify stuff here on the proposal and in print or is this just the just this just the things because you've talked about the quantified estimate but this is not a guaranteed projection
2: that's right so for here i pulled one up here with me so if it was tax strategies for this particular client we said research entity structure options and benefits next point under tax strategies coordinate with cpa on potential tax credits uh, third item under tax strategies review current tax planning provide observations recommendations then we jump to employee benefits plan analysis, review key man policies and buy-sell agreement, review current employee benefit offerings and benchmark, analyze retirement plan benefits.
1: And if we've had good whiteboard sessions, like you already know these are all pain points for me or points of anxiety because they came up in the whiteboard session and I wanted to talk about those further and we had some back and forth. If it was a thing you put out there and I didn't respond to it or wasn't interested or said, no, that doesn't fit for me, like... That's cool. You've moved on. That's not showing up in the proposal here, though, because you've you've already figured out which ones are actually my hot buttons.
2: That's right. And, and we'll include some other ones we know are going to come up. You know, If I have a business owner client, I know he's going to ask me about either setting up or analyzing his 401k. So there's a good chance in the meeting I said, do you have a Roth option in your 401k? Surprisingly, a lot of four, small 401k plans don't. So I'm able to say, and they usually would say something like, well, I make too much money to fund a Roth. And then I can say, well, Roth 401ks don't have an income limit. Oh, really? I'd never heard of that before. Oh, of course. An extension of that is, are you fully funding your 401k? Yeah, I put the 57000 in this year, but I, I still don't know what else to do. Well, have you heard of a cash balance plan? Kind of. What is that? Well, I've, We have clients putting up birds of $200,000 a year in cash balance plans. Do you know what that is? Well, no. I stopped there. So I've, I've peaked their interest. I've told them something they've never heard of before, but then in the proposal, I'll say, 401k plan analysis evaluate cash balance efficiency. Okay,
1: and then page four is you know is is fees is the what
2: it's going to cost. Yeah, we, we we've kind of again semantics. We call it what's your your investment for the next twelve months.
1: Interesting, interesting because it just makes the or it just reinforced the point. Like this isn't a cost. This is money you're putting in in order to get an ROI on the planning process and your and your fees which we've already been talking about quantifying in terms of yes it's going to cost you $800 a month but i can save you $70,000 on this one planning strategy over the next 10 years and we have 11 things on this page that we're going to be spending time on
2: that's right and I, and i have some other uh, pretty high profile clients that have multiple professionals on different levels and they pay us a flat planning fee a year just to be in the room when they're looking at different investment strategies and alternatives because we are technically the only one in the room that does not have skin in the game on some type of product you know, they might have a, a broker in there, they might have kind of a, a VC person in there looking for some assets, but but there's a market even for a proposal to where I tell somebody it'll be $15,000 a year for me to be on call to help you evaluate the risk tolerance fees and and fit of investment opportunities that are brought to you. So the spectrum is so big on on, on the value that can be added. Most of ours are pretty detailed like this, business owners, let's lay a clear path out there. But as your reputation builds for being unbiased and creative, you're gonna get these clients that just say, I just want you on the team. What does that look like? And they're willing to pay more money than you'd think just to have access. So then I I I do have to ask, like, do you you still have a model that
1: you said at the end of the day, like you do advisory accounts as well. In fact, it's it's I think you'd actually say like it's mathematically still the bulk of your revenue. You know, there's some occasional insurance implementation as well for clients that need buy sell agreements and 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 you're facilitating that so at the end of the day you know you, you do have at least some i guess the skin in the game or potential skin in the game because there are opportunities for you to do portfolios or other implementation of things that may have some non-trivial dollar amounts associated with it so i guess i'm just wondering like why is that not a, an issue or how is that not an issue for you that you you're you're framing it around the, you know, clients that have, that pull you in for sort of the neutral Switzerland of the advice fees. But you do have other ways to get paid that add up to a lot of dollars that it would be nice if they actually do that portfolio thing with you and not and not someone else, even though you can totally get paid a good planning fee to help them while they do it with someone else. How do you think about that conflict or complication that's still there as you're trying to position neutral, but you do have a stake in having them? ultimately do some implementation with you.
2: Yeah. I think for us, I have to know that based on what they're doing now, that our solution is dramatically better for them in order for us to position an alternative. For example, for years, I managed investments to where I outsourced it. You know, I was technically more of a soliciting advisor and I, the, the money was being managed by their advisors and, or money managers. I had a fee layer in there, but it was almost like I was a pass-through and we committed years ago to saying, I don't, I don't know if that's worth the fee if i'm getting paid to advise them already i'm technically double dipping if all i'm doing is passing that through and shaving some off the top so as i've built my team we manage our portfolios in house and so i can we can click a button to harvest an etf you know we get the expense ratios down around 0. .25 where a lot of other options are 0. .51 or higher and so we're so confident that that's a valuable piece that if the time comes it's one of those things where if i see someone's portfolio and they're paying one and a half percent advisory fee one percent internal expenses and i'm just like what you're doing is not right you need to do something else (laughs) hey we have a solution because i don't want to all of a sudden send you out into the the wild west to go find somebody else on your own we have a solution for that and it's in its best in class in our opinion but if there's a better option we'll be the first ones to tell you to do it elsewhere but please just get away from the portfolio with 2.5%. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But I think for me to, to, to feel good about it is, hey, we're, we're planners first. Pay us for our time. Hey, we do other stuff. If the time comes, we're going to show you what that looks like. But I know within me there's no sense of urgency because, again, I'm, I'm busy enough with what I'm doing that I don't have to, I don't have to pursue a $250,000 investment account to bulk up our AUM.
1: And again, I think that's an interesting framing our point that 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 you'd say, like there's, but there's no sense of urgency within you. Because you said earlier, like, you're getting paid a very healthy planning fee, like, again, for so many advisors, even who are charging for planning, like it's not profitable at the level we do it for any particular client relationship. So at the end of the day, there's always some level of urgency to get clients to, to follow through and do something else and implement something else. Whereas, when you actually get your planning fees to the point that you don't need the you don't need the follow through business and there's no sense of urgency sort of the the perverse irony is that's when clients actually end up asking you to do it and work right. with them because the you you actually end up with a healthier relationship with the client because you're not pushing you're not subconsciously pushing because you really don't need to when you're getting paid paid well in the first place you know I've, I've seen that over the years even with like hourly advisors. There's an astonishing number of hourly advisors who start out hourly because they don't want to get paid for any of the implementation. Mm. And they end up building very healthy AUM businesses Mm -hmm. because they get such a great relationship with their clients, giving them only the advice and getting paid well for it. At some point, the clients have so much trust, they just come and say, can I just pay you a separate fee to also do this part for me?
2: Yep. And And I think that's where me personally, I have to feel so confident in what that product is, what we're delivering for the price we are. That, that it's, again, if I have that kind of relationship, there's a moral obligation to let them know there's a better way. If they bring something to me that's even better than what we have, I'll be the first one to tell them, hey, you should take that. But if they don't, and they don't want to, a client literally says, I don't want to search down another advisor. You're the one I trust. You've done so much for us. Would you help me with this? I think in good and conscious as a, as a independent business owner, you can say, I have a solution for that. And here's what it looks like, by the way, we do get paid additionally for this piece. And here's what that looks like. So if you if you're fully transparent and commit to delivering something of high quality, I think that's a great business model that'll thrive over time.
1: So help us understand now like how you actually to like do the follow through to implement this planning process with all of this planning intensive work and a lot of ongoing meetings and at some point that becomes a bottleneck if it's just you, so uh, other advisors have to get trained within the firm to do this as well or or you get stuck. So so help us understand, like, what the actual process is for the firm. Like, when the client, you client, gets a proposal, like, "Sten, this looks great. I'm, I'm convinced. I'm ready to come on board. I'm going to make my $800 a month investment in working with you." Like, what comes next now?
2: So we've had to get better at this over time because I think when I did it early on, I overcommitted and undercharged. And then the feeling I would get during the year is I'd sit there, say say I, I signed clients up in January. July, I'd be sitting there thinking like, okay, what did I do for them? I, there was a kind of this anxiety around, am I following through with what I committed with or this feeling of like, I need to create something to do for them so that they know I'm still thinking about them. And all of that was just a lack of a process and setting good expectations up front. And so I have a pair planner on the team, two other advisors, three staff to where we, we use workflows pretty efficiently to where I know there's a couple times in February, I'm running a client list to reach out proactively before tax season. And probably in August, I'm doing some proactive reaching out to schedule in-person meetings. And then my team will do a touch point with our clients in kind of mid-year just to say, hey, how's it going? Is there anything we could be doing for you? Just letting them know we're thinking about them. If you sign up a client for a financial planning fee and rely on them to pursue you, you might meet them once a year and your renewal rate's probably going to be pretty low. So, we take it on ourselves to say, here are the proactive touch points. If you're an A planning client paying us $10,000 a year, we are going to initiate three in person meetings with you and a mid year check in call. But by the way, I'm also going to reach out and meet with your CPA before tax season to make sure everything's in good shape and also talk to your attorney at least once a year to make sure that nothing's changing there. So, it's up to us to pursue and try to make sure hey, is there a life event happening? Is something changing? It's really the proactivity of it is is what's going to give them the peace of mind when they say, oh man, you helped me do X, Y, and Z. I didn't even know that. Oh wait, you've already talked to my CPA about funding my SEP IRA. Oh, that's such a relief. And you have to keep in mind throughout the year, you need to document all of this because when it comes to renewal time, there's two two sides to it. There's the compliance side of it, which means you need to you need to be able to document, hey, here's how many meetings, here's how many calls, like I delivered enough value for this fee. But also you're making your case for the client of why they need to renew with you. Right. So, and then again, we share all of our playbook because I've just said, man, there's too many people for us to serve and there's more advisors need to be able to charge for their advice because I believe the 20 somethings that I was there before, if I knew I could charge, I wouldn't have charged as much as I do now, but I could have charged something that the extra revenue that would have brought in would have paid my bills. I just didn't even know how to start it and what to do and what to charge and what what I would deliver for it. And so we're kind of to a place where let's just give that away because there's there's enough to go around but but if you have a good process in place it removes that 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 sense of urgency or anxiety of like am i doing what i said i would or am i doing delivering enough value for them to renew and i think a good reminder is that not everybody needs to renew it is okay if you get to the end of an engagement and if you feel like you're creating ideas or value just to get them to renew you're their advisor you may say hey you know you could keep paying us but maybe based on what i see coming up in the next 6 to 12 months instead of our fee being 8000 i think it'd be more realistic for it to be 6 if something comes up that we're not expecting, we can always address that. Are you comfortable with that? What, you're going to lower my fee? Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. You need to continue to, to hold that posture that the, the goal of everything is not for you to make more money. It's deliver great advice, creative advice, and, and, and do it in such a way where people are going to say, man, they're, they're different than other advisors.
1: And how do you actually just manage and track all of this? Like what's the... So we use Salesforce workflows. These are Salesforce workflows? Mm-hmm. And is that like Salesforce out of the box, Salesforce financial services cloud,
2: like some other overlay system? Out of the box at this point is kind of what we've been really committed to the last year to kind of clean our data up and commit to it. We use for years Trello, which is kind of just a, a board you know, that can be shared with different team members to kind of track ongoing action items. We still use it for some service items, but we believe if we can commit more to a workflow and part of the pair planner on the team, he's responsible for our financial planning book to say, Sten, it's time to touch base with this client. Oh, their renewal is coming up in a month, which is about the time we start positioning for the renewal meeting. So if you do this to a small extent, you could do it as, as maybe a, a single advisor. I'd say get a team as quick as you can if you want to scale it. Because the highest and best use of my time is meeting with new clients and and being in the meetings that only I can run. My team can help with service. My team can help with documentation. The experience we're delivering is really going to be heavily coming from my team. The ideas and the advice and the in meeting experience is my responsibility.
1: And so how do you think about that as you look at continuing to grow and scale? Like what what happens when there's so many clients that Sten can't be in all the meetings?
2: Yeah. So we've we just recently promoted our, our paraplanner. He's going to start doing advisory work next year, financial planning for himself. He's he was in the we try to do that paraplanner role is about a two year track. I think that's a great way for people to get into the business if they are ready for the grind so that's a position we're going to look to fill in the near future as a new pair planner on our team and so i think as, as we can kind of elevate people when they're ready into this role if you can enter financial planning with your main source of, of activity and revenue being financial planning the other business will come and i think it just it's starting the business in the right way in my opinion now because so many young advisors are out there selling stuff to their friends and family, kind of low-hanging fruit just to make enough money to stay in the business to later look back and say, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that to them. Doesn't mean all that stuff was bad. It just, they'll realize someday there was something better. Right. And if and if, and if if our model can help advisors avoid that by actually just getting paid for their expertise. But I put him through a hard track. He He had to get a CFP in a year, really before he could even actually advertise that he had it. He's working on his enrolled agent information now because I've, I've pressed in with him. Hey, you are the product. I don't need you to be the best investment guy right now. I don't need you to be an insurance specialist yet, but I need you to be able to recognize strategy opportunities and position them to clients and feed them into our process. And if you do that well, you'll make more than money than you think you would have and, and your career momentum, you'll never look back.
1: So... As you go through this kind of annual process and, as you said, sort of documenting and tracking along the way, so how does this actually work when you come to the the end of the year? I mean, you've talked about clients renewing. do you do you literally build up to a there's a renewal meeting and they have to re-up for a contract with another year? and if they if they don't re-up and renew, they're not going to continue or do they stay in by default, but you still try to do an annual meeting because you just want to reinforce what the value is? Like, how does that actually work?
2: Yeah. So, you, so you're on the team or you're not. So I think we, we don't call, we don't use review meetings, renewal meetings. We call everything a strategy meeting. I think, again, kind of the psychology of it, it's like, hey, we're, we're talking strategy. We're not reviewing what's happened. We're looking forward. And so we, we, it's another strategy meeting for the client. I happen to know it's about four weeks before their one year is up. And in that meeting, we, hey, here's what we've accomplished. I essentially am making the case, hey, in the last 12 months, here's what we've done, X, Y, Z. Whenever possible, I quantify it. Hey, you know, these things we talked about, we actually did it, and here's what it turned into. Oh, by the way, the next 12 months, here are the things we need to talk about. Oh, by the way, it's time for us to renew the engagement. Are you comfortable continuing on? There was firms I was with in the past that actually got uh, automatic renewal in place, which was nice, to where your engagement just stayed open until it was canceled. I think as I've done financial planning, I've interacted with like three or four different compliance departments. So for your listeners, just cooperate with them, work with them, because everybody kind of views it differently, what you need to deliver, what a fair fee is. But when we get to that renewal meeting, hey, this is a strategy meeting. Here's what we're going to keep working on. And the, the fact that they're going to pay us again is kind of a, we know what's happening. We'd be surprised if you said no. It's kind of the, the vibe we're giving off.
1: But compliance in your context actually does require you to at least do something, affirmatively sign something to keep them on board because that that's their view is no open-ended, indefinitely renewing fees.
2: Currently, that's kind of the the, the RIA we're, we're part of. It's, it's kind of the, again, they're, we're their biggest financial planning team and they're a great resource for us. And so we're working on that. And so I've seen it where it's kind of open-ended and I've seen it where it's, hey, we at least need to document once a year they do it. So if you streamline your compliance process, take good notes throughout the year while compliance is necessary, it shouldn't be debilitating. And so we'll get them to sign a new engagement. Again, we can do all DocuSign. And so it's, hey, here's the form, sign it, we're off to the races again. But if they say no, there's a chance maybe we've picked up enough assets where they become a reasonable client on the AUM side. But more often than not, a lot of these clients are starting businesses, building real estate. Like They're not aggressively funding investments with us. And we would just say, okay, well, here's here's some things we what we would have worked on when you're ready. Let us know what's... And then we're, then we've taken them off our workflow and we're not pursuing them. I might have a drip campaign where I say, Hey, every six months, let's drip on these past clients to see if they're ready to, to sign back up. But to be honest, we're busy enough with new business that we, we don't really even pursue old clients. We're available. They might be on kind of a drip email list of our newsletter, but we don't kind of try to keep them on the roster and, and give the value away for free once they've been on it.
1: Interesting. And, and, and ultimately this document, you kind of have to manually build or does this sort of export out of Salesforce with all the different meetings and calls and action, I things you've done, like just how do you actually build the, the, the backward looking review portion of here, here's what we did for you over the past year.
2: So the first version of it is, is our para planner goes through the years notes, my meeting notes, call notes, and they put together kind of a high level agenda that matches up with our initial proposal, essentially saying, Hey, we said, we we're going to help you with retirement planning. Here's that section and what we talked about. And so they'll give me the framework of that document and then I'll go through and kind of breathe my commentary into it because there's some things I know I just talked to them or details I can kind of put in there. But at times, I mean, that could be a five-page document. People aren't buying a book from you of a bunch of documents or reports they're not going to read. They want like, let's get to the point. Like, hey, we we established a 401k. We funded it fully. It saved you X, Y, and Z in taxes. Our plan is to continue to fully fund that plan. And next year, we'll evaluate a cash balance plan to see if that makes sense next section, estate planning. We updated your estate planning to improve the trust language for your kids. We're going to continue and talk about buying an insurance policy to help pay for estate tax in the future. We'll talk about that next year. And so it's really just a commentary on here's what we've done and here's what's what needs to come next. And if you can keep it to two, three, four, five pages, we then put that in a binder for the client that's essentially, hey, here's an ongoing reminder of, of all the value we've added together and we've just made the case, but I would tell advisors, try not to wait till the last minute and reverse engineer and create this document because we did that early on and it was just, it, it was it was a lot at the last minute. Have a process of taking good notes in Salesforce, which we should all do anyways or whatever system you have. But then come up with a good template like we have to where it's like, hey, by the time we hit to that, it's click, click, click. We have the process because as you build it, I mean, you might have five to ten renewing a month and you're like, okay, we got to have a good system in place. But, it wasn't that long ago that I was fumbling around trying to figure this out, under-delivering, under I mean, that was four years ago. And so, and I was intimidated. I, I tipped my toe in the water. I didn't even jump head first. So I'd encourage advisors that you need to know, you either need to add financial plan to your business because it is the future. It's growing rapidly. Or you at least need to know what other advisors like we're doing, because if you don't, we're probably going to take your clients. So, so I th- I'd stress the urgency of, of, of getting this on every advisor's radar to some extent.
1: And so, what is the what is the overall size of the the practice today? And I, I guess in terms of of clients you're serving, or or AUM or revenue, I don't even know how you manage it since you've got kind of a blended fee model at this point.
2: Yep. So revenue, to the we'll be on track to do about half a million of planning consulting fees this year. We'll be at about one and a half million of of, of advisory fees. But again, so a chunk of those we're charging less than we did back in the day at, at uh, the bigger firms. But still, good revenue, and then insurance. I think this year we might did we did maybe three three hundred fifty thousand of of insurance commission.
1: And how many clients is this across? Like how many how many clients do you work with on an ongoing basis now?
2: Two hundred and twenty. Okay, I think was the last count. So when I left my the prior firm where I saw a bunch of A share clients, you know that you just no matter what you did, you couldn't fulfill the the upfront commitment to two thousand people. We've tried to focus on saying, hey, let's keep client count down. Let's find the people we can really add value to because we know they're out there. It's just up to us to go find them. And what's great about financial planning clients is, is where I used to take a $50,000 investment account and it would be on my roster and I'd eventually be like, I can't afford to service them like I wanted to. A financial planning client, they keep paying you, but if they don't, they're not a forever client. So where if a client has a $50,000 investment account, I don't need to go pursue that. They'll just pay me a $5,000 planning fee. And it helps keep my client count from growing to some point to where my reputation in the marketplace is, oh, that that guy never calls me back, which is something i always wanted to avoid.
1: So what surprised you the most about trying to build your own advisory business?
2: I think for me, it was, it was really myself. It, it was the, the beliefs I had early on that were so wrong that were driving all of my decisions. And that's four years ago, I wrote that book, Seven Mindsets of Success, cause I, you know, when I was 28 and received national recognition, and then at thirty one one of the top advisors in the country under 40 in a cold market, people are like, what's your magic bullet? You know, like, does your family have a bunch of money? Like people just couldn't figure out like, how are you doing that? Cause we're all trying, working hard and it's not, we're not seeing those results is i really had to reflect and say okay i'm naturally have a scarcity mentality i don't think that's true i don't take feedback very well i mean if if it was today where they when i played basketball in college and they had videos of everything i would be mortified i would get fights on the court like i had this this fire in me this this issue with authority that if a referee or a coach tried to correct me i would i would fly off the handle and i had to overcome that to realize like i need feedback from people i need to know what i'm doing wrong and so so i think it was really realizing i was the biggest obstacle And and by writing that book and speaking to advisors, it's, I tell them what you think is, is your full potential is, is much lower than what it really is. And so you need to figure out what things are holding you back first. Are you avoiding discomfort? Do you accept perspective? Do you even, do you seek out perspective? Are you asking people to tell you what you're doing wrong? Or are you getting mad when people try to give you unsolicited advice? So I think there's this, uh, this, this lift to do of advisors saying, what do I believe to be true? What do I believe my potential is? And then what I, why I love speaking to advisors and coaching is, hey, here's where I was not that long ago. <laughs> I was doing all the same stuff that advisors get frustrated with today, but, but I was able to break out of that and look what I did in three years. Because I think when advisors hear that story, while it's slightly intimidating, they know, okay, it's actually possible. And once we know something's possible, now it's up to us to go figure out how to do it.
1: And I'd, I note as well, for those who are listening, this is episode 210 of the podcast. So If you go to kitsuscom slash 210, kits.com slash 210, we'll have links out to Sten's book and some of the, the courses and other programs that he's talked about that he's been building and sharing out to the advisor community. So Sten, what was the, what was the low point for you on this journey?
2: When I left that firm where i would you know kind of bright-eyed walked in saying hey i'm going to take over the world and, and this is where i'm going to do it and i was walked out with a box and sitting in an office having nothing no not knowing what to do next and not knowing who to ask and i was just about to, to quit the business and kind of take a, a traditional route and you know build grow the corporate climb the corporate ladder and and that for me you know when you when you start realizing because i know a lot of advisors are this way you know i had a kid on the way i had a wife just bought a house the, the pressures of I have a responsibility to fulfill so I can't chase this 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 dream or this take on this risk. I was months away from from not being where I am today. And and I think part of that is why I have a passion for you know sharing that story. I think when I speak on stages it's easy, you know, I'm sure it's the same way I remember seeing you, I'd be like, man, that guy's had it figured out from day one. And I know that's not true, but there's a tendency to to feel that way. That I've done the same path that most advisors had. I think I just found some hacks and, and some some strategies that I kind of applied quickly to kind of supercharge that success. So I think that was definitely the low point. I think leaving a broker dealer and moving my book to an RIA was tough. Communicating that to clients. So I think that's part of the business. So I've kind of learned that owning a business, you know, it's like a chess match and a boxing match all at the same time. And this is true for my business owner clients. It's like every day I'm trying to make good decisions, but randomly Mike Tyson's going to pop up and punch me in the face. You know, is, if that's 2020, you know, it's we're trying yeah. to do it here. But wow, this is coming up. So I've I've learned to kind of accept that being owning a business is hard and things are just going to not always go as planned. But now that I've settled into that routine and I've built a s- established practice, a lot of the risk is is gone. But it was at that moment where I had a choice, and I think a lot of advisors do to say, "Hey, it, am I willing to go figure out what it takes?" And if they listen to your podcast, they know there's advisors that have overcome a lot to do it. Now, the advisors need to say, am I willing to pursue that information and apply it? Or do I want to just hope it all works out?
1: So I I am wondering, though, just as like you, you're fired out of the former firm, like no clients, empty office, new house, new mortgage, new spouse, kid on the way, right? Like all of that burden of, of responsibilities to fulfill. What ultimately like changed or turned it around for you that you are actually still here and didn't end up being one of the 80%? I got,
2: a, I got some quick wins. I know I had to get creative. So I, I snuck into the mail room at Vanderbilt and put some thing. I had to realize, Hey, who has money and, and who needs help? And so I, I kind of focused on some doctors and found out, Hey, I, I realized their dis- disability policy through the hospital was only ONoC for two years. Most of them didn't know that. I also found out there was a company called Eris that would give me a backdoor access to the Fidelity 401Ks so I can actually manage the 401K while it was still in the 403B plan or manage mm-hmm. the 403B while they, they were still working. So I, so I found a, a market niche that allowed me to get some quick wins. And it was those quick wins that I realized, okay, now I know these people are out there. I just have to figure out a better way to get to it. And so I made enough money to pay my bills for the first year and a half, but but I saw the light. You know, I was able to say, okay, there's opportunity. But I'm thankful for the fact that I didn't have such a warm market that I, could have re- that I could have rested on a steady, warm stream of referrals that would have just kept me steady. Right. I had to get creative and do things differently. And what I realized, thankfully, was that the things I decided to implement were, were different enough that when people started hearing about it, they referred it, they wanted to work with it, and it allowed my business to grow as fast as it did.
1: And what led you to the particular niche of like of doctors and tied to and tied to Vanderbilt. Like how how did that become the thing out of the clear blue sky while you're at the the moment of despair on the edge?
2: It's the largest hospital in Nashville and they they happen to list the doctors' email addresses on their website mm. where many don't. And so I was like, well, you know, there's faculty and doctors here, so I'm gonna start I remember sitting on my couch developing kind of an email drip strategy of saying I can't just give them a generic, hey, I'm Sten, do you want to meet with me to talk about your money? Like I had to give them some nugget to be like, wow, I need help with that. And so I used the 403b example I gave you and the disability to say, hey, I work with some other doctors there. They didn't actually read their disability policy and realize that it was only ONOC for two years. So after two years, they'd, they'd have to get a job doing anything. And that got me enough response to say, hey, I'm going to be near the hospital on Wednesday. Can I swing by and just share some ideas with you? But at that time, I wasn't doing financial planning. And I look back and I'm like, man, if I was able to position a financial plan to these doctors making three, 400 grand, I wouldn't have had to try to sell them a DI policy or get their 403B. I would have just had a bunch of financial plans with a bunch of doctors. But I think my path would have been even easier if I would have had that offering. So is
1: there anything else that as you work back, like you wish you'd done differently? You're like, what, what do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you from 10 years ago as you were still getting going?
2: Building a team faster. I did probably do it faster than some. When I hired Jamie, my first team member, who's now my practice manager, she's a rock star. She was probably making what I was going to make that year because I, I hired away from another firm, but she increased my capacity to do revenue generating activity. Because if you get a little bit of flow and you're doing paperwork and tracking that on your own you're going to spend half your time doing paperwork and half it prospecting i need to spend 90% of my time building my business fast and so i could i could have even done that a little bit sooner where i was a little hesitant to do that
1: because it just it feels like such a high stakes investment when it's like i'm i'm finally making a little bit of money let's totally not make that money anymore and hire someone else
2: oh yeah especially when you're married and you know you've been on a budget and and you're then telling your your wife or spouse that Hey, we're just starting to make some money, but now I'm going to reinvest that back into the business. So we need to keep eating macaroni and, you know, so it's, but I think if an advisor can, can put one more year in of, Hey, I'm going to kind of keep it lean and I'm going to bring somebody on to, to leverage, to, to keep myself available, you'll see exponential growth where I think a lot of advisors, they say, okay, I'm going to make enough money for me to be comfortable. And then I'm going to make another $60,000 on top of that. And then I'll pay somebody to keep myself whole that's not how a business owner or entrepreneur thinks. Most businesses borrow money to start. You know, I didn't do that, but I, I just didn't do fun things for myself for a little while longer to kind of build that up.
1: So what advice would you give to younger or newer advisors that are looking to become a financial planner and, and start a firm today? They are thinking about going, going your path of hanging a shingle in their 20s.
2: Yep. I'd say study up. I'd say get your CFP you are the product you know if 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 i was going to get a high risk surgery i wouldn't find the person that barely passed their their medical exam i'd i'd find somebody that's really good you know if i was being sued and about to go to jail i'd find the best attorney And so that's the kind of profession that we need to be on par with to say take it so seriously that you are the professional and you're going to deliver great product but i'd also challenge advisors i'd say you need to surround yourself with other top advisors because what'll happen naturally is you'll kind of end up on an island or you'll be in an office with a few advisors and you'll start kind of looking and feeling like each other. You need to go outside of that and surround yourself. You know, Don't recreate what I did over the last five years. If If you can go get it today and learn all of that, why would you do it in five years if you could do it in one? So I think you need to realize it's already been done. People are actively doing it now. The only thing you have to do is go find it. I think that's much less intimidating than hey, go do something that you have no idea what to do and create it by yourself and hope it works out. And I think, unfortunately, that's what most people do.
1: So what comes next for you? What are you working on right now?
2: So I've spent quite a bit of this year building out what we're calling the Elite Advisor Network, where it's just advisors getting access to our team, best practices, here's some videos of things we're doing, but then they'll connect with other advisors that are doing different stuff. And and I think there's just a need for more of kind of what you've been building, you know, where it's just like, let's bring advisors together. We're not all competing. Here's best in class ideas. Michael Kitsis does not need to have a podcast and create content, you know, but he wants to. And and I think that, that we need more advisors that are willing to kind of give that stuff away. And then we're working on some neat kind of financial wellness technology. You know, I have kind of a heart for if I can deliver unbiased ideas to everyone whenever they want it. I think that helps m- people make better decisions all the time. So... I used to think really small, and that was just a product of, of how I grew up. And I've, I've challenged myself and, and through experience been like, hey, I think I can think bigger. And so I think going into the next season, it's there's something freeing about keeping your head down for three or four years, building a business that'll take care of you and your family that all of a sudden frees you to think bigger. And I think that, that should be the goal is, hey, build a great business that serves people well but don't be afraid to pick your head up and look around and say, hey, there's some other stuff to be do here. You know, We opened a, a donor advised fund that we fund as a business and now we give it away. And I put this in the Seven Mindsets book that if the only reason you're building your business is to make more money from yourself, you'll probably quit at some point. I think the only thing that kept me going in that hard point, in addition to, hey, I have to have family to take care of, is that I knew I had three sisters and a single mom that that I could help. and And those were my who. You know, it's kind of start with your why, I say, start with your who, like, why are you doing this? Because most of us will quit on ourselves when it gets hard. But if I look at a picture of my three sisters and mom and I say, well, you know, I'm not quitting on them though. And so I think it's, it's why are you doing it? And, and realizing that your potential is, is far greater than you think.
1: I love that framing. Like don't, don't start with your why, start with your who because you won't quit on them. Mm-hmm. So, Sten, as, as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just even the word success means different things to different people. And so you know, you've had this incredible growth over the past few years and now a, a multi million dollar revenue advisory firm. But how do you define success for yourself at this point?
2: Coming from where I came from, it was—I think—I had the tendency of to where it was kind of accumulate, 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 and so I've luckily I have a sister that's a missionary and good people around me that have kind of said, "Hey, make sure you focus on the right things." And so I think at this point it's kind of multiplying the impact. I have people ask me, "Sten, why are you giving away the practice ideas you built over five years?" You know, where it's like, "Hey, I think I don't just need more." You know, I think that if that's your goal, it's just the the number is never satisfied. So. I think if I look forward and, and two years from now, I help 300 financial advisors scale their practices and create a life and impact a hundred of their clients. I mean, at that point the numbers are I think that's that's meaningful. And I think those are the things that'll kind of fire me up for the next 10 years.
1: I love it. I love it. Well, I can't wait to see.
2: I'm just trying to I'm just trying to keep up with you, brother. It, bro? <laughs> oh, we'll uh we'll try to we'll try to help
1: it get going for you. So again, for those who are listening who wanna just learn, see more about what stens building this is episode 210 so if you go to com slash 210 we'll have links out to to all the stuff that we've been talking about today but thank you so much stan for joining us on the financial advisor success podcast you bet i had a great time thanks likewise thank you